Welcome to SMT Pod, the premier audio publication of the Society for Music Theory. In this week's episode, the Theorizing African American Music series comes to a close with a poignant conversation between Phil Ewell, Louise Toppin, Teresa Reed, and Jewel Thompson, and a sneak peek at what the future holds for this conference. Hello, my name is Philip Ewell, and uh, we have a great um, final episode of this Theorizing African American Music Conference podcast series at SMT Pod today. I have uh, three icons of uh, academic music and academic music theory with me, and uh, they are Louise Toppin, University of Michigan, Teresa Reed, University of Louisville, and Jewel Thompson, my much-loved esteemed colleague at Hunter College. And uh, on the final uh, evening of Theorizing African American Music, we had this wonderful keynote panel, and I thought uh, it, it had Travis Jackson moderating. And in addition to uh, Louise and Teresa, it had Trevor Weston, uh, Tammy Cronodal, and A.D. Carson. And I'd hoped to get the band back together, but because uh, uh, schedules are so very busy, of course, it, it wasn't possible. But Louise and uh, Teresa graciously uh, agreed for this um meeting here and that we found the time, of course, which is half the battle. And I thought to myself, well, wouldn't it be great to have my colleague Jewel Thompson round out a, a conversation in which we discuss African-American women in uh, academic music and music theory. And that's how we have our three-person panel today. So I'm going to jump right in um, with some questions and introductions. And um, I think I'm going to start with uh, Teresa. And um, I'm not going to give a long bio. I'm just going to say that Teresa is now the de- uh, the re- director or dean, uh, you'll tell us, of the School of Music. Dean. The dean. Okay, there it is, of the School of Music at the University of Louisville. She was in Tulsa for many years before that. She has a, do- a doctorate in music theory from Indiana University. But I'd love to hear from you, Teresa, kind of just where you began in music and um, when it was that you kind of decided that you wanted to actually go into music and music theory, and maybe a couple of poignant uh, moments in your path. Teresa, thanks. Thank you so much, Phil. And I'm really honored to be with our colleagues here today. I began in music in the Black Pentecostal Church. That really was where my love for music was uh, born and nurtured. And I learned without seeing a single note of music uh, for some years, learned to read music in uh in high school. So I was a late bloomer compared to uh, the colleagues and peers I would encounter later. But I learned music in the tradition of the Black Pentecostal Church, the Church of God in Christ. And I I started out playing by ear and playing piano and saxophone and working with the choirs and the bands. Um, If anyone who knows that tradition uh, uh, recalls, you uh, let everything that has breath praise the Lord. And so you (laughs) walk in the door learning uh, by imitation and through being mentored and through crashing and burning in front of hundreds of people <laughs> who are expecting you to do God's work and to do it well. So um, I, that was my, my musical birth. I decided I wanted to somehow do music uh, for uh, the rest of my life. I didn't have a clear picture of that, but when I was a, a music major at Valparaiso University in the early 80s, I was standing by the water cooler one day when my theory professor walked by and just said, Teresa, I think you could get a teaching assistantship. I had no idea what that was, but since he thought I could get one, I decided to pursue it. And so I did a teaching assistantship in music theory and uh, went to Indiana and the rest is history. Brilliant. That's great, Teresa. You know, when you said you got to start in the Pentecostal church and that you you didn't read music until a little bit later. And I thought to myself, Oh my gosh, you could actually make music by listening to other people and hearing things. <laughs> oh, goodness gracious. Yeah, that's the only way in that context. <laughs> you know, because obviously in music theory, we're, well, kind of like cerebral and we, you know, it's all about intellectualizing and all that. So, so I sometimes joke about the, the actual uh, making of music. Thank you. 
Uh, Louise, can I maybe go to you now and, and ask basically the same question? Because as a uh, icon, Coloratura Sopranos, uh, if I were to actually read a, a bio for Louise, that would take the rest of the episode. So we're not going to do that. Just to say that she's um, sung on some of the most prestigious concert uh, stages uh, on planet Earth. And uh, she is a um, she was the dean of the School of of the Department of Music at the University of North Carolina uh, for many years. And now she's at the University of Michigan uh, teaching voice. Um, so I'm just going to turn it over to Louise and let her tell a little bit about her story too. Thanks. Certainly. And at UNC, they call it the chair, but it's the equivalent to a, a dean. That's in other right. Places. That's right. Um, yeah. My story is similar and yet dissimilar from Teresa's in that improvisation played a great deal of my early life. Um, I grew up on the campus of Virginia State University, so instead of, and I'm an Episcopalian, so our music traditions are a little different. I grew up in a Black Episcopal church, which meant it spanned everything from light, light, light gospel, Andre Crouch was about as far as you could go, to spirituals, to Bach, and everything in between. So my musical education from church was that, but at Virginia State, we had people like Undine Smith-Moore on the faculty. So wow. she became a very close family friend, but also uh, my parents reported that I was that child. I'm the youngest of their children. I was the child that would listen to the radio and go to the piano and play a reduction of whatever symphony, sonata, whatever they had on the radio, that I could do that. And they called Undine Moore and said, should this one, my sister was studying with Undine Moore already piano. She said, should the youngest one be studying piano? And I they said, Dr. Moore said, how old is she? And I was something like five. And she said, oh, she's much too young, but she can come to the lessons with her sister. So I went with my sister to her piano lessons and I can still see the house of Undine Moore and all the sheets of music laying around in the living room. And I sat quietly with my mother, watched everything she said to my sister. And then I'm the one that went home and practiced. <laughs> so it's in my improvisatory. My sister read a book. I mean, she didn't even have to pay me. I just went and practiced. And my sister read uh, a book. She practiced enough to be able to sort of do her lesson. But I was the one diligently, hour after hour, sitting there trying to recreate what I'd heard. Mm -hmm. And from there, I went to college to be a pre-med major, actually, and enjoyed that. But along the way, as I had to make a choice, my father said, you know, God has given you an extraordinary gift as a musician, and I think you should finish as a pianist. So I actually graduated with a bachelor's in piano from UNC Chapel Hill, went to Peabody in, in piano and accompanying. Someone heard me singing while I was there at age 25. I did a master's in voice just to become a better accompanist. That was my goal. Wow. But that person sent me to George Shirley, who was teaching at the University of Maryland, after I graduated, as I'm accompanying around Baltimore and New York by that point, but they sent me to George Shirley and he said, you're a real singer. And mm -hmm. that's what brought me to Michigan, which was such a wonderful environment for African-American music. Willis Patterson was there as a mentor to me and George Shirley, even um, before I could accept my lesson, my letter to University of Maryland, which I thought I was gonna do a doctorate, he was in in Michigan. So that's how I ended up in Black music, particularly. Wow, fascinating. Thank you. You know, Undine Smith-Moore looms very large. Uh, the bumper music to this pod series is is Before I'd Be a Slave, uh, played by my uh, colleague and friend and our colleague and friend, Jewel, uh, Jeff Burleson. So listen for that at the beginning of, of each episode. Um, and uh, a, a wonderful uh, uh, story that you have there, Louise, because um, I, it just makes me immediately think of someone who had such a brilliant musical mind as a, as a music theorist. Let's just be very clear. Undine Smith-Moore, of course, was a music theorist and a fabulous composer and then a pedagogue. But um, the idea that, that, that Undine Moore could have somehow been part of a musical mainstream, we all know that that was just not possible, right, because of because of her blackness and her womanness. And that's just uh, a travesty, but uh, but it's still a, a fact and we shouldn't turn our heads away from that. We should acknowledge that and, and somehow uh, fix these, these issues. Uh, 
um, let me turn now to Jewel and and essentially um, ask the same question and listen uh, to your own path a little bit, Jewel. And and by way of introduction, uh, I said Jewel is my dear colleague at Hunter College, also teaches music theory with me in our department of music. Um, and uh, it's just been a great uh, honor getting to being your colleague and, and getting to know you, Jewel. Maybe you can run us through a little bit of your own past, too. I will mention right away to the listeners that Jewel's PhD in music theory is uh, 1981, Eastman School of Music. And uh, she wrote on uh, two volumes, by the way. I have it on interlibrary loan. I unfortunately did not get here in time. For today's conversation, but two volumes on the Black uh, English composer Samuel Coleridge Taylor, which I think is something we should also talk a little bit about, but maybe Jewel first, a little bit about your own path. I'm sitting here hardly, I can hardly sit in my seat because you mentioned Undine Smith Moore, and she was my major resource. I'm a country girl. I say I'm a country girl, a rural from the rural area in Virginia, uh, Westmoreland County, Virginia, the uh, county of uh, the first president of the United States, George Washington's county. Mm. Anyway, um, my parents, my father was a Baptist pastor of, a, of three churches at one time until he combined them into one. And my mother was a elementary teacher with a great emphasis in music. And she, uh, she would teach piano lessons in the home. And of course, in those days, we didn't get babysitters. So we had to sit around the room and be quiet as mice. And, um, and I would listen, all of us, we would be listening to the piano students that came to her. They, uh, she taught piano in the home. And after they left, I was about four years old when my parents told me this happened. I went to the piano and started playing back the tunes that I heard. and. Um, continued to do that. And um, my mother died when I was eight years old. Uh, she played for the churches that my father pastored. And uh, there was one, no one to play the music, but I could play all the tunes, and the hymns and everything. So <laughs> I became the church pianist mm. at uh, eight. My father married again, and he married a lady who was high school teacher I think in uh, English, but she had been a great choir member in her college days. And she knew how to conduct, conduct and put the choir together. And of course, uh, she took over the choirs at the church and she needed an accompanist. And in that rural area, there were few people who could do that. So I had to be the accompanist. So I knew that in order to play the pieces that she wanted to teach, we had to do some piano study. And so I was in high school when I started taking piano lessons. And um, I went to, went to Virginia State University. I was the valedictorian of my high school class. So I got a full tuition scholarship to Virginia State. It was called Virginia State College at the time. And a full tuition scholarship. And of course, I wanted to major in music and I, auditioned, of course, and um, of course, Dr. Moore was one of the auditioners, mm -hmm. as well as another, uh, you know, some of the other uh, teachers, music teachers, and part of it was sight reading, and I uh, played this piece, and she, Dr. Moore, have you seen this before? I said, no, so she said, this is something and she said I should major in music. And so I was in her theory class, of course. And um, one day uh, she was just testing the students. Of course, I made good grades in class, but she was testing the students playing this pitch and that pitch to see if they recognized it. And she asked, played several pitches. What pitch is that? We were looking at the music and I would tell her. And she said, young lady, you have in that day and time, they call it perfect pitch. You know, you could recognize the pitches. And, um, and she followed me, uh, of course, through the four years that I was there. And, at the, and as it happened, I ended up being one of the valedictorians of the college class. And she said, you should go on in music and music theory. 
and you should go to the Eastman School of Music. And she knew Dr. McHose, who was the uh, top theorist. Wow. Books. And um, she had worked with him too in some research. And um, she recommended me for the Hattie Strong Foundation Scholarship in, in the, um, Virginia. Mm -hmm. State of Virginia gave me a scholarship. At that time, they didn't want any Blacks in their universities, so they would pay you, <laughs> pay you a scholarship to go to another school. <laughs> right? And she said you should go to the Eastman School of Music. So I did. Went to get my master's there and um, very successful. Um, I had a good uh, good teachers. Um, only Dr. Host briefly, but uh, there was uh, Dr. Robert Galden and all the theory teachers. They seemingly took an interest in me and followed me along the way. And when, I, when um, it was time to write my master's thesis, uh, I wrote it on technical practices. At that time, we, we were moving from Negro. We said Black composers in choral works for acapella choir, and I did that. Hmm. And um, I did some teaching, we came back home, did some teaching, but uh, there was still the burning issue, you should go farther, further. Hmm. Hmm. So I went back to Eastman, got uh, help there, and Dr. Galvin said that uh, you uh, your analytical ability is outstanding. And there is this black composer, Samuel Coleridge Taylor. Hmm. And it would be a tremendous contribution if you selected him. Wow. And I did. I got um, a Ford Foundation scholarship. And, mm -hmm. uh, there was a fraternal order that gave me scholarship help. So I was able to do research and went abroad to England and studied at the Royal College of Music. And I even went into to France to following the uh, you know, life of Samuel Coleridge Taylor in the, the libraries there. Wow. And that's how I ended up. And now that um, book is one of the high reference books and I was also asked to be a contributor to the book on uh, Black composers. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I have a piece in that. Mm -hmm. and, uh, Jewel, that is a fascinating, fascinating uh, story. I think we're going to get you back on a pod, just just you and me, or or or, <laughs> or you know, just to have a longer conversation about some of these things because it's so very interesting. I really, really want to hear uh, from Jewel, but also from from everyone here about some of the issues that you had to contend with as you were making your path through academic music, because we all know that um, the farther you go back in time in our country, the harder it was. For black people and especially black women to be part of uh, the official officialdom, right, of, of academic music. You go back far enough and it was impossible in the 19th century, for example, or, or frankly, in the early, early to mid 20th century as, as well, as we all know. Um, and I, I'm going to come back to Jewel, absolutely, because I want to hear a little bit more about Eastman and also just about, you know, official music theory channels and how your interaction has been with, with that. Um, but let me come back to um, Teresa first and, and, and ask a very similar question, which is, um, what were some of the moments that you, you brushed up against that were difficult? I think, I think it would be very interesting for listeners to hear about some of the things that, that we Black people and, and you Black women have to deal with as we, as we make our way, try to make our way in the academic study of music in the United States. Teresa? Yes, thank you, Phil. And I, too, um, want to sit at the feet of Jewel and hear so much more of uh, your story, ma'am. Thank you so very much. My challenge throughout undergrad in particular was having this keen awareness of the virtuosity in my own background, um, my Black Pentecostal background, 
and having that is something that I treasured and that I cut my teeth on and that I held up as uh, the model for you know how one improvises and collaborates having that so deeply entrenched in my whole being as a musician and then to come to the academy and find out that that was completely dismissed mm. um, it was very difficult but you know we do what we have to do right it was very difficult to live in both worlds um, but I and many people did it um, I would navigate between my Black Pentecostal world and my academic world because I was at Valparaiso, <clears throat> excuse me, Valparaiso uh, University, which was less than an hour from my home in Gary, Indiana. So I would uh, go back home to, to Gary and have the Black Pentecostal experience and play my music there and be in the world there. But then I would have to tuck all that away <laughs> when I went to Valparaiso in that environment, which was very, very uh, overwhelmingly white. I was the only African-American uh, music major in my class when I started that fall. I was joined by another, uh, another friend from my city this spring semester, but I was, I was the only one um, uh, for many of the classes that I took. And uh, I won't go into all of the racism that I experienced, except to say that it was, it was difficult for me to know the value of my own musical upbringing, my own cultural self. It was difficult for me to know that value and to treasure that and to come into an environment where people who were completely ignorant and who had no way to uh, approximate the kind of skill that I saw from my church background, they, they were completely tied to the page. They mm -hmm. were completely dependent on notation. For yes. them, music was notation and notation was music and the two were synonymous and there was no treatment at all of all of the other things in, in both classical and other musics, all the other things that make a musical experience apart from the page. None of that was, was treated. Of course, I came through the academy at the time when everybody studied the grout and there was nothing in the grout, <laughs> yeah. absolutely nothing in the grout about uh, the music of, of people of color. Nope. And um, so I, I lived in this world as many of us um, who have this experience did, getting the credential, doing what I had to do to get the credential and, and keeping my other self hidden so as to not expose that part of myself to a critique that I knew would be grounded in ignorance and racism. And, and, and that was tough. I kept looking for myself in um, the music that I studied. My dissertation was on a sonata by Florence Price because I was on this continual quest to find Black people in music theory. I loved music theory. It, it came easy for me because all I did was listen for the first <laughs> few years of my life. And so when everybody else was freaking out over ear training and oral skills, it was like a piece of cake to me. But I had no doorway to say, you know what, there's a lot of us like that. There's a lot of Black folk who could come into this class and who could just ace oral skills with, you know, just like it was, you know, eating ice cream, where everyone else found it to be the most difficult thing in the world. And although I knew that there was this value in my skill set that came from my Black background, not seeing a pathway to bring that forward safely was, uh, was difficult and not something that I fully reckoned with for many years. In fact, there are parts of that experience, that particular experience that I never voiced, never gave voice to until I was in my, well into my fifties. Mm, yeah, that's fascinating, Teresa. You know, and it's something I, I, that so much echoes with me too, that uh, it's hard to even give voice to these things. It's hard to even understand it. It's something, frankly, that I myself, if I could just speak personally, will be trying to unpack for the rest of my life. I, I just, I there- there are things that I that I still I'm like, wow, that was so strange. What happened 30 years ago, you know, and 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 the way you speak very beautifully about how we had to compartmentalize love of black music, because yeah. it just it, it wouldn't it would have completely upset the racial order of things in, right. in the late 20th century, early 20 and early 21st century. And frankly, today to to even suggest that we should be mentioning um, Margaret Bonds in the same breath as Franz Schubert. 
no, 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 you can't do that. That's um, that's that's not 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 what we do here in music theory. And it's it's of course to to our great um, uh, detriment to everyone's detriment. Louise, could I bring you in? Um, essentially, kind of the same thing, and talking along the same lines that 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 Teresa just so beautifully spoke about. Absolutely. Um, for me, it was partially the the feeling of isolation, um, mm -hmm. having grown up on an HBCU, as I said, that um, and Virginia State was such a rich musical environment um that you know the piano lessons i had i had played margaret bond's troubled water and so what troubled me as i went to college and did become a music major was uh unc was at that time very heavy with music history and theory courses we had five histories and five theories and i didn't know anybody who had parallel theory courses with it so i loved theory and and, and loved history but it was the same sense of where are the people that I just spent my first 18 years hearing about watching. I watched Dundee Moore play her um, suite with Antoinette Handy and uh, Bill Terry. So I actually was sitting there as a child in the audience, and yet none of these names are coming to the fore in my education. And so that was a feeling of puzzlement and of isolation. So I didn't mention that I knew that there was this rich heritage that was running along parallel in my brain, but I, I just learned my Mio, my Beethoven and everybody else. Um, I was the only African-American in my undergrad the whole four years. Mm -hmm. And so I did, I had to put aside that part of me that was a rich heritage. The other piece I didn't say quickly is that my father was the historian of uh, civil 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 war and reconstruction he's one of the country's best known historians in that area so i grew up with a sense of there's this pride there's this legacy there's this excellence i knew it was there and i'm not seeing it reflected so that lack of continuity between what i grew up with and what i'm seeing in the academy stuck with me very much through my undergrad my grad program till i get to michigan and there's raylinda brown teaching a course the first time i'm hearing someone teach a course in the music of african americans and she's talking about all the music but she did put a heavy emphasis on the concert tradition there's patterson i arrived in the 80s he had already published his anthology in 77 of art songs and so i'm for the first time in a community where i can speak about the very experiences that i'd had and they're the ones that did the 1985 symposium including undine moore and all these other mm. wonderful composers so when i went into the academy as a professor i was back to being i was the only graduate um graduate pianist at peabody at the time that i was there so again i'm isolated again but i had a huge community guy ramsey bill banfield all of kira gaunt we were all there together as doctoral students and then I go to my jobs, the first one at East Carolina University. I'm the first African-American woman in the history of the program. They only had two of us. Nobody knew what I was talking about once again when I talked about this music or when I tried to bring artists in. And I even had some attacks in that the dean asked me to write for a minority initiative that was a university initiative. And I'm looking around, why me? If this initiative has been here all these years, just because I've just arrived, why have you all not written for it? Mm -hmm. But I wrote for it, wrote for it for about 10 years consecutively. And then I had colleagues begin to say, can we bring in white people? Hmm. You know, as I'm, I'm being asked to do this, right. I went to UNC, I'm their first permanent African-American in music since 1795. And wow. so I just felt like I was going back. I'm only the second african-american in voice at michigan shirley verrett was first i'm second mm -hmm. so those but at least again i'm back in the same environment that let me talk about african-american music and really made a, a a point of making this a part of the curriculum whereas throughout most of my career throughout my education it was not you couldn't talk about this yeah it's incredible the the dismissiveness i think 
Um, I don't know if you know the minister. He's in Atlanta. His name is Dante Stewart, young guy. Um, he wrote a really beautiful piece for the New York Times a month or so ago. And it opens uh, with the following quote. To be a victim of injustice hurts hard. To be a victim of indifference hurts deeper and longer. And that sums up, uh, in my opinion, the experience, uh, experiences of African-Americans in academic music in the United States. We can all point to one instance where something was just horribly unjust from a racial standpoint, right? It just was wrong. And that, I mean, up to and including a lynching like George Floyd, right? Um, it's, it's, these, these are moments that are just meant to denigrate and hurt and, and up, you know, to, to the most horrific tragedies you could possibly imagine. But the everyday dismissal and, and in even denigration is what actually is the indifference. And uh, he also talks about uh, white ingratitude in this article. This is Dante Stewart again in the New York Times piece. We can link that in, in, the, in the program notes to this episode. But it's the indifference over decades and indeed centuries that hurts deeper and longer. And that we've really touched on that, I think, uh, in, in this uh, brief conversation, that we, we, we all realize that there's this um, indifference toward what African-Americans have offered musically to the country, because it's been pretty massive. Everybody knows that. Nobody could possibly deny the influence that African-American people have had on the history of music in our country. That's just a fact. And yet in the academic study, we are coming back to this point like Louise was the, the first person, Jewel was the first person. I, myself, I'm 57 years old and I have been the first person in many different arenas uh, in, my, in my career, either as cellist or as music theorist. Um, I'd love to come back to Jewel now and, and hear a little bit more about your perspective on these issues, about this indifference or, or or dismissiveness that we've all had to deal with. Maybe you could talk a little bit about uh, that aspect uh, first at Eastman and then also from kind of official music theory channels, the Society for Music Theory or, or regional societies or, or other uh, aspects of music theory generally. Jewel. Mm -hmm. uh, Eastman was truly a wonderful experience and uh, I did not... Um, I did not experience racial injustice there. The teachers- That's great. Uh, uh, took me on the hand, I think. I don't know if it was because I was black or what, but anyway, I had no problem with the teachers. And even today, uh, the one that was my advisor still uh, communicates with me. But uh, in choosing or uh, in going through my studies, um, they noticed uh, my contributions to the class and the grades that I made and so on. And they were right there. And um, my problem at Eastman was in the community where I live. Uh, mm. Going into the community, uh, no, that's snow country up there. And walking down the streets to school and the snow would be so high that it would be higher than I. But anyway, in the community, um, kids would throw snowballs at me. Mm. And I would be so, of course, embarrassed with my other friends who were walking with me. Um, I'm trying to remember the man who put together the big documentary on Blacks. Um, had volumes covered us from the beginning to where we were at that time. Uh, his name will come back to me. But anyway, um, we had roommates. We didn't have roommates. We had our own room. But I had friends in the theory department as well as, uh, you know, other friends. And they would invite me to their room to watch it on TV. And I had to sit there and watch them you know, how they treated us mm. and try to keep a straight face. I know they were noticing too, but they were kind and and seemed supportive anyway. Mm -hmm. That kind of experience I had. But as far as the teaching goes, they recognized my scholarship and confidence. So when I did the uh, 
thesis or dissertation on Sammy Coleridge Taylor. They watched it with, uh, you know, read every chapter and, and they were learning things themselves. But anyway, it was suggested that it be published as a book. And there were uh, companies that wrote to me asking for that score. And finally, uh, Scarecrow Press, it was called at that time, mm -hmm. uh, asked to see my thesis, a, doc, a dissertation. And they published it as a book. And today it's Excellent. considered top source, but anyway, Excellent. Um, they felt that it was just that good. That's excellent. What about, I'm, I'm really interested to hear about music theory, kind of the field after Eastman. Um, what were your experiences there, Jewel? Um, after graduating with my doctorate, no, after getting my master's, I uh, came to Hunter. Um, let's see, after finishing my master's, I got married. Mm -hmm. And uh, I had taught in public school before going to grad school, um, taught music for a couple of years or so. But, and it wasn't theory. It was just the general music for the high school students. But anyway, when I went to Eastman and finished my, my master's, there was a young man who had also been to Eastman. And uh, he was now... Uh, a big, uh, his name is, I'll just say his name, mm -hmm. Leon Thompson, mm -hmm. who later became uh, Director of Educational Activities for the New York Philharmonic. Anyway, uh, we married, and of course, we sh um, he was a Fulbright scholar and all of that. But um, when we, when uh, after the children were sort of some size, uh, I wanted to start teaching again. And the pastor of our church was very instrumental in saying to the people at Hunter and talking to the board that uh, there was someone who was truly qualified and should be considered. Mm -hmm. So he wrote a recommendation and I went to Hunter College as an adjunct. And I taught there for a couple of years and decided to go get my doctor. That's my doctor. I see. So the connection to Hunter's started between your master's and your PhD then? Yes. Okay. And how about officially, for instance, the Society for Music Theory um, or, or other music theory channels mm -hmm. after Eastman? Were, did anybody try to engage with you at that point later on in your career um, and, and, and to interact with you or that's, invite, invite that's you? What to I, that's what I meant. When I went to the Music Theory Society, and of course, they were having their discussions and so on. And I wanted to be a part of things. Of course, raising my hand, they would recognize someone else to speak. And then when we take our breaks and, you know, socialize, I would go over to try to join a group they would either talk louder to themselves around me or even walk away. And it got to be so uh, uh, uncomfortable going to those meetings to be shunned like that, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, I stopped going. <laughs> and uh, That's so unfortunate. I uh, continued to pay dues. And then I said, now why am I paying dues and I can't enjoy the meetings or be a part of anything? One time I was... Uh, asked to be on a panel, got the topic that we were discussing, contributor. And okay. And uh they took it lightly, you know, but they talked around me or found more to say mm -hmm. than what I had said. Right. So that it made it look like mm, she didn't say anything, you know. And you know, Jewel, we're all worse off for it frankly and 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 that that is something that it's painful to hear but i think it's really important to hear and thank you thank you for that um i'm looking at our clock and i realize that we probably should be wrapping up soon i wonder if i could maybe just in 60 seconds or less ask you each 
I don't really much care for the, um, what do we do now? What do we do now? Questions are so broad, they're so di uh, difficult to answer, but maybe I could ask each one of you in, in 60 seconds or less, just to say what a piece of advice would be for uh, a, a black person and, and maybe specifically a black woman making her way through the uh, academic study of music in 2023, because you all have such great experiences and perspectives. Teresa, can I start with you? Yes, absolutely. Thank you so much. I am just transfixed by Jewel, and I need more time with you, Jewel. I really do. Um, I would well, say we all do. <laughs> I would say to celebrate your heritage. Don't do don't do what I did, and wait, you know, twenty five, thirty years to feel affirmed in who you are. Feel affirmed right now, and if the field has a problem with that. That is the, the field's problem. That is not your problem. Our music is beautiful. Our artists are genius. Our, our heritage is valuable. And we need to be, um, we need to assist, if anything, the field in recognizing the value that's always been there. And if they do, great. If they don't, we, we really are autonomously wonderful. And that's something that I really appreciated about the conference in June. Uh, some space to celebrate who we are without apology, without uh, compromise, and without uh, hiding. Here, here. Here, here, so, Teresa. Well said. Thank you. Thank, Thank you. you. Jewel, can I come to you? 60 seconds or less uh, uh, and a piece of advice uh, as, as we Black people and especially Black women make their way through uh, the academic study of music. Well, I cannot separate it from what I tell my students every day, I'm way past what they consider their retirement age, but since they don't have mandatory retirement, I keep teaching. And I Good love for it. you. Good for um, you. And I tell all my students, black and white, and most of the white students, anyway, if this is your passion, go for it. Don't tell yourself you can't do it. You can. Um, we uh, use positive statements only. Go for it with you as much as you can. Um, here, here. Yes, energy, feeling no. Just, <laughs> just carry with you. I can do this, and I will do it. And and yeah. that's what I tell them all. <laughs> here, here, Joel. Very nicely said. Thank you, Louise. I would just add that I would say to them, don't let yourself be isolated, reach out. There are so many women who have at this stage gone before you who are still around mm -hmm. to be your mentors and to help build you up. So encompassing what we've all said, don't be an isolationist because no. that is not the way that we move the needle forward. So that would be my advice. Excellent, excellent. Well, thank you all so much. Uh, my name's Phil Yule, and I have been speaking with three very esteemed colleagues and friends, Louise Toppin, University of Michigan, Jewel Thompson, my colleague at Hunter College, and Teresa Reed of the University of Louisville. Thank you all so very much for this great recording and conversation. Thank you. Thank you, too. Thank you so much. I'm going to give some thanks to everyone at SMT Pod and, and elsewhere. Um, but before I do that, I'd just like to uh, mention that at the end of, of my thanks, I'm going to invite Chris Jenkins back and we're going to give some final thoughts for everything. So please stay tuned for that. We have some uh, uh, fun announcements for the future and, and a really great testimony from one of the participants um, in the conference. So please stay tuned after my brief message here of thanks. And yes, indeed, thank you to Louise Toppin and uh, Teresa Reed and Jewel Thompson for that great conversation. Thank you for everything that you do. You are icons, you are OGs to the field. And thanks also, of course, to everybody at SMT Pod for, uh, for allowing us to do this five-part series, especially Jennifer Beavers, Megan Lyons, and Lydia Bangora. And also thanks to the Society for Music Theory for providing support for this pod, uh, for this podcast generally and just generally supporting um, this idea. I think that's very important. 
A special thanks to Mark Pottinger for his great peer review of today's episode. I'm going to tap the brakes here a little bit because Mark made two comments that I, I would like to emphasize and comment on just a little bit if I could. Um, Mark is a Black man. He, he was on the steering committee for theorizing African-American music and did great work there. And thanks to Mark for that. Um, he's a professor of musicology. He has his PhD from the Graduate Center, uh, uh, the CUNY Graduate Center. And he's the chair of music at Manhattan College uh, in the Bronx. And he made two great points that I'm going to highlight here uh, in his peer review for this episode. The first one is that all three panelists uh, have strong ties to the Black church, which is uh, worth pointing out, uh, Pentecostal church, Episcopalian church, and, and the Baptist church. And that often provided a respite for Black people in the history of this country, really, right? Of course, during slavery, it was it was not allowed to be uh, to to uh, form churches and and go to churches. It was discouraged to even have group uh, meetings about religion. Um, but then, uh, in the postbellum America, the church became uh, quite an, uh, a strong force for many things. My own father was uh, raised in the Baptist Church in Louisiana. And that's very likely where he found his love of music. He left the church. He was um, not a religious person. I myself am not religious. But I do think that my dad, my African-American father, found his own love for, for music and classical music in the Black church. So that's a really great point that Mark made that, that I would like to underscore here. And the second point was about the indifference that the three panelists today um, talked about. And I, of course, talk about that myself often. This indifference, this white indifference is something that we really must all face and confront and talk about and, and resolve because it is not uh, something that is acceptable. I quoted uh, from uh, an article by Dante Stewart. The uh, He's a young, uh, 31 years old, I think, in Atlanta, a grad student at Emory, but he's a minister. He had a great piece in the New York Times. We'll link that in the uh, program notes. And I quoted from it. Um, the opening of that article is, to be a victim of injustice hurts hard, to be a victim of indifference hurts deeper and longer. And later he talks about white ingratitude, and I'm going to share one more quote from that very same New York Times piece back in December of uh, 2022. And Dante Stewart writes, quote, white ingratitude is very real, and it is the heart of white power and white supremacy. If you are ungrateful for another person's humanity and freedom, then you will do all types of things to devalue and disrupt it. Many white people are ungrateful for what black people mean to America, what we have been, what we have done, what we have given them, and what we have endured. Close quote. And that is a very poignant quote. It's a striking quote. And frankly, it is exactly true about the academic study of music in the United States. It is very true about American music theory. I think we all know that. Uh, we really should not try to dispute that. That would be disingenuous. In Mark's peer review, he wrote uh, a sentence that I would like to quote, and I have his permission to do so. Um, this is an open peer review process, as you know anyway, but uh, I emailed him just to make sure. Mark uh, wrote specifically, quote, Putting aside the recent efforts by the Society for Music Theory to articulate diversity statements, the reality is that Black music academics often feel that they need to prove their ability to exist in white spaces, and ones in which that often asks the Black music academic to be more urbane, more culturally sophisticated, more multilingual, more well-read, and more musically inclined in order to be seen less Black and hence more the ideal white, the universal, close quote. So I thank Mark for pointing that out and, uh, and, and prompting me to read a quote from Dante Stewart. This is, in fact, uh, one of the main problems of academic music as I see it in the United States. This inability to view Blackness as the equal of whiteness and our collective inability, and this is to our collective shame, myself included, that we cannot see all of the things, all of the musical things that Blackness has given American music. And this is not about simply going to see a conference paper on Johnny Lee Hooker at a conference. I, can, I can't tell you how often 
senior theorists tell me how great everything is because our con our conferences are so diverse. That is a smokescreen. That is just not something that is I'm willing to um, to brook. I will not tolerate that. The epistemic core of what we do is still very much centered on this mythological version of the West, and we really need to come to terms with that. Theorizing African American music very much tried to do that. I think we were very successful in many ways, and I very much hope that we can keep this momentum going. And um, I very much am thankful for uh, this this um, platform with which to make these points. And I very much thank everyone at the Society for Music Theory for allowing me personally, but also, of course, everyone else uh, to do so uh, in highlighting the Theorizing African American Music Conference. And now I'm going to stop. Thank you all very much. And please stay tuned for my final comments with Chris Jenkins. All right, Chris, um, it's great to be back with you here for our final wrap up of this five part pod series on theorizing African American music. Whew, it's been a long uh, haul, right? It's kind of bringing back all of this um, uh, memory, all these memories about what we did for last summer. It was really great. Maybe you could just uh, go through a couple of your final thoughts about uh, about everything. Sure, Phil, I would love to talk about it just because actually the process of making the podcast has been really helpful in recalling the, the kind of energy that we had. Uh, that was the most impactful thing to me, the kind of energy in the room when we had uh, all black or majority black spaces talking about theorizing African American music, talking about uh, classical music uh, from, the, from the perspective of black musicologists and music theorists. Um, I had never been in a space like that. And I actually was proud, if, if nothing else, of the fact that we were able to convene spaces like that. That that felt so meaningful to me. Um, and so I'm hoping that we can do so in the future, too. Yeah, yeah. Well, we'll talk about that a little bit at the end of this wrap up. Um, for me, it's... Um... You know, this conference in some ways was new and with its with its focus on th the music theory aspect of it, because music theory has been so very exclusivist in its past in this country. But of course, um, on the other hand, <clears throat> this conference was not new. Um, there have been many conferences before uh, featuring African-American musicologists, uh, musicians, um, composers, uh, the music. They have happened in musicological spaces, ethnomusicological spaces, and other spaces as well, obviously. So it's important to acknowledge that. I often say that, uh, well, Black musicologists go back to at least 1878 when James Monroe Trotter published his Music and Some Highly Musical People, all about African-American, essentially classical and concert musicians um, who had worked up until 1878. So that's a long time ago. But obviously, there have been countless others um, who have been uh, making these points and 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 essentially theorizing African American music as well, if not in a direct kind of um, uh, music theoretical uh, fashion, which I think uh, was was very much part of this conference. So um, it's been it's been really, really great. And, and you're right about bringing up all of the um, all of the community and in the the special experiences that we had last summer at, at Case Western. Um, we also should mention um, that one of the icons of the concert that you put together has passed, actually. Maybe you can say a couple words about that. Yes. Yeah, so the composer, uh, Dolores White, um, uh, passed away um, just recently at the age of 90, which is such an accomplishment in itself. And um, I'm just very glad that I had the opportunity to meet her before her passing, um, I actually was first approached by her several years ago because she, she was working on a book about her husband, uh, the cellist Donald White, who was one of the first African-American players in the Cleveland Orchestra uh, many, many years ago. Um, and actually we did have some of, of the music that she's written performed on uh, our concert. I think that a bit of it was used earlier in this episode um, and 
those pieces for cello and piano she had actually written to perform with her husband donald white with herself on piano so that was a very meaningful performance and she was able to actually take part in that and that was really amazing um and you know i just really appreciated her energy and her spirit which is really captured in her music if you haven't heard it I very much uh, suggest that you go check it out. It has a lot of personality and character everywhere. That's one thing that she always had in spades, lots of personality. Yeah, and it's amazing that these African-American composers, they're hiding in plain sight, right? They, they're always there. They always have been there. And um, it's just fascinating to me how little we collectively know um, in, in terms of mainstream, let's call it, um, academic music. And um, it's just wonderful to to um, come across all of these composers and to see people actually finally engaging with them. And also um, her daughter was one of the pianists, right? Uh, Diane White Gould, and she was playing her music and that was also very touching. Yes, that's right. Actually, Diana and I work together and perform quite a bit, uh, music by black composers and, and Kari as well. Uh, so it was great to have them on the um, performance for sure. Yeah, so um, one one uh, uh, totally amazing thing that happened at the end of the conference, uh, un, unprompted, uh, we had this comment from a young Black bass player, his name is Drew Collins, and we're going to play his comments here for the listeners with his permission, of course, and, um, and then we can reflect on them because it was very, very powerful uh, what Drew said. Um, hey, this is more of a comment, actually, um, but I really wanted this mic for to address everybody in this room. Um, I've been a, the program assistant for uh, this conference and I was hired to, um, it was some pretty good money, so I was pretty excited about it. And so that's mostly what I was here for. Uh, that's initially what I thought I was coming for. Um, and beyond my wildest dreams, I have truly feel like I've been transformed um, by the papers that have been written, by the words that have been spoke, by the friendly faces that I've met. Um, by the discussions that have been had, it's just been almost um, a violent shift in perspective in my life. And I have to thank every individual that has been here to, you know, speak, um, the people that have, you know, put this together. I, it's just mind-blowing, you know, the, the things that can be thought of um, when people really decide, you know, they, they're, they're in a cause for good and that they want you know, a shift to happen, and they really dedicate their lives to it. Um, and as somebody that's just dedicated from, just graduated from their undergrad degree, um, I'm a performance major. And this all has been so, I can, every word resonates so well, and through my body, I can feel it, you know, coming out of every orifice. <laughs> um, so I just really wanted to say, you know, it makes, it really touches me in a very intense way. Um, just thanking everybody here. For the work that you're doing, yeah, that's all I can say. So I just want to say about those comments, especially as someone who worked, uh, rather who works with students, that's my primary job at, at Oberlin, where I am right now that um, those comments for me were the most important part of the conference because they demonstrated the potential that this has to transform, or rather this kind of project has, right? To transform the next generation of musicians to help transform their viewpoint. Uh, and also it impacted me because I felt, you know, in some kind of poignant way, it's very difficult to realize that the next generation also is encountering so many of the problems that, that we encountered and has not necessarily been given the tools to free themselves from some of those restrictions. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it, they were, those were such powerful comments uh, from Drew Collins. And, um, and I, of course, thanked him after the conference for them. I think they were the most poignant for me as well. I, we, you and I worked very hard to get this conference off the ground, of course. And I thought I had some trepidation, like, oh, how's it all going to play out? You know, whether it's going to even, you know, work or is, are people going to be disappointed? And it was at that moment I said to myself, okay, everything was worth it. I don't care what anyone else uh, says. 
um, because to see a young undergraduate black classical bass player, Drew, um, speak like that with such emotion and um, and realizing that, you know, he had never been exposed to such spaces. I had never been exposed to such spaces, certainly at that point in my life. I have had other opportunities since when I was younger to 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 work in spaces like that on rare occasions. But it's so hard for uh in in white spaces and and academic music is a white space that is something that's just a fact and un unless of course you're at an hbcu for example but in mainstream america academic music is white and it's just so hard for blackness to come together and have that sense of community because frankly whiteness uh, very much does not want to see that happen just to be blunt about it and and it's something that we have to work at to to uh, see these spaces come together and then to hear someone like drew talk like he did was just was so very impactful so thank you drew for those comments um and since i'm thanking drew uh, i think we should just get to our final thank yous um and uh chris and i have just a million names but uh realizing that we have a million names that will be here forever so we're going to kind of broaden it out a little bit and thank institutions and and committees there really really were so many people so just a general shout out to everyone who participated and who gave their time and who um who who helped us to make this uh conference happen because yes chris and i worked very hard but that doesn't mean other people did not many many people worked very hard and we're we're very very grateful for that so um first i think uh chris will start with some institutional thank yous yeah, so we'd very much like to thank and appreciate the work of uh, schools uh, that assisted us in, in actually producing this project. That would be the Cleveland Institute of Music, Oberlin Conservatory, Case Western Reserve U University, and the Society for Music Theory, and particularly Case Western and CIM, which hosted us. And certainly the uh, School of Music at the University of Louisville, uh, I actually made an error in an earlier episode and referred to it as the University of Kentucky. It is the University of Louisville, uh, of which Teresa Reed is the Dean of the School of Music there. And we really want to thank them for their generosity and their uh, donations. And so, Teresa, you did get a shout out there. <laughs> Thanks, Teresa, who also was on this episode earlier. Um, and the committees, we had uh, three committees working on this. The steering committee worked. Uh, we had many Zooms with an uh, outstanding steering committee. We had a local arrangements committee for uh, folks in Cleveland and then a program committee that went over all of the um, conference proposals. Uh, and we also worked very hard. So everyone on those committees, thank you so much. Um, everyone in the uh, participants in the actual conference itself, uh, the concert that Chris uh, spearheaded on, on the first night, Thursday night, many people, we mentioned Dolores White and her daughter, uh, Diana um, White-Gould, <clears throat> excuse me, and um, then we had many people, participants on the program, of course, all the people who gave papers, all the people who came in to moderate sessions, and uh, the keynote speakers uh, on Friday and Saturday, just everyone who was on stage was so very, very inspiring. And uh, finally, another uh, group to acknowledge here, of course, is everyone at the Society for Music Theory podcast series. What a great new initiative. All the people behind the scenes there um, have been so very gracious in setting this up, spending their time putting out this series. And it's been really great working with everyone at SMT Pod, so thank you all. Uh, finally, Chris and I would just uh, we're 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 going to mention a couple of future plans that we have. Um, we're not uh, we're going to get the band together again and uh, do a pre-conference um, uh, conference uh, this fall in Denver. So uh, this fall, the American Musical Musicological Society and the Society for Music Theory will meet in Denver, and on the Wednesday before November eighth. We're planning a small pre-conference uh, theorizing African-American music conference. So look for that call for papers. Uh, we hope to have a keynote speaker and uh, some music performed. And that will be uh, in Denver before the conference uh, AMS SMT, Wednesday, November 8th. And finally, uh, we are in fact planning a theorizing African-American music to 
the sequel. <laughs> and uh, this would be in likely June of 2024. And we are in conversations with a couple of places. Uh, and uh, that would hopefully happen. So we very much look forward to that. Uh, I'll give Chris the final word, but I will sign off. This is Phil Ewell. Thank you all so very much for listening, Chris. Thank you all for listening. Um, we really hope that the spirit of the event has, has come through and been communicated in some of the uh, talks that we've had and some of the music that we've played. And we look forward to seeing any and all who have an interest at future TAAM events. Visit our website at smt-pod.org for supplemental materials related to this episode and to learn how to submit an episode proposal. Join in on the conversation by tweeting your questions and comments at smt underscore pod. SMT Pod's theme music was written by Zheng Chen Lu with closing music by David Voss. Thanks for listening. <laughs>